But in John 6, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye or all of you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. And so that question in verse 68, to whom shall we go? Uh, Those words are the title of the study tonight. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that we can study this, which is one of the great questions of the Gospels. And for a few moments as we look into these passages, we just pray you'd give us the ability to explain them, help us to clarify whatever is complex. We're grateful that you so loved all of us, that you gave your only begotten Son. And we're happy that he died on that cross and that you raised him from the dead. So, Lord, as we look into this, speak to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Earlier today, I was reading a story about a man from South Korea who was raised by parents who were not interested in God at all. In fact, his parents were atheists. And he said because he heard the church bells as a little kid, he was interested in what went on in that building. So he went in there and, and, and liked what they were doing and listened to the stories about Jesus and found them all very interesting. And he said he attended for oh, eight or nine years just growing up. But he said when he became an adult, he kind of fell away and he really struggled with the idea of how could you live holy and what does the gospel really mean? What can it do for Korean people and that kind of a thing? But he went away to college and to university, ended up with a very nice job. And one of his friends genuinely was born again and became a Christian. And he immediately noticed that his life had changed. Everything about him was different. And he told his friend, I I don't understand why this whole Christianity thing has made such a market change in your life. And the gentleman told him, well, it's because the Lord came in and gave me a new heart. And the guy said, well, I went to church as a kid and I spent a lot of time there. But it just didn't affect me the way that it's affected you. And then the, the friend began to explain to him that just because you're in church for a decade or more doesn't necessarily mean that you're a believer. And you can hear gospel stories over and over again and you can learn those gospel stories. But that does not mean you're born again. So this gentleman started with Matthew chapter one read through all of the Gospels until he got into John chapter 4 and saw where Jesus was talking to that lady about having living water. And if you ask of me, I'll give you something and you won't thirst again. For the first time in his life, he realized that the salvation he needed wasn't just going to church and being religious, but he really needed a change in his heart. And that would bring about that change in his life. And he committed his heart to the Lord. Well, I read that story and I kept thinking to myself, how many millions of people are there on this planet just like him? 
that have been in church a long time, but have never truly surrendered their life to the Lord. They know the Sunday school stories. They understand all the rituals that go on in the church, but that heart is cold and it's like a stone. And they need God to really reach down there and ignite it and set them on fire. And the only way that can happen is we have to be willing to surrender ourselves and really place ourselves at the foot of the rugged cross and say, Father, it has to be your will and not my will. It can't be my righteousness. It has to be your righteousness. It can't be my self-will. It has to be you. I don't want to be stubborn. I want to be submitted, God. And when people do that, that's when good things happen. But people in church for a long period of time who truly haven't committed, they have a tendency to misunderstand what is stated from the pulpit or misunderstand what's going on in a church. And those are the kinds of things that offend them. And they say, well, I just don't want to have anything to do with this if this is what this is all about. And if you look at the earlier verses in the Gospel of John, chapter six, you'll notice that Jesus told the disciples in verses 53 through 59, basically, he said, except you eat my flesh or eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, immediately when you hear that, I mean, that conjures up in your mind all kinds of bad images. Why would you need to eat anybody's flesh? But of course, Jesus is speaking figuratively. And there were some people that struggled with the idea that he said in verse 55 and 56, my flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. And then in verse 57, as the living father sent me, I live by the father. He that eateth me, he shall live by me. All of this is different. No one talked like this under the Old Testament. Moses never said this. Abraham didn't say this. Isaiah, Daniel, Malachi, none of them talked like this. So the confusion was so great that, that they were offended. How can anybody tell us that we need to eat him? We are not cannibals. We are not carnivores in the sense that we eat humans. But he said in verse 58, the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, they're dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. So he continued this entire discussion, even going so far as to ask them in verse 61, does this offend you? See, does this offend you? Sometimes people are offended by hard sayings, things that they don't understand completely and thoroughly. And you can probably think of situations where you've had conversations with people and you told them, here's what the Bible said. And they immediately misunderstood what you were saying, misinterpreted what you were saying, and then got offended by their own misunderstanding without knowing it was their own misunderstanding. People do it all the time. This is why sometimes it's good to go back into the word and look at it again to see what Jesus is saying or go back and ask someone a second time. Can you clarify what that means? And anytime you have a question, the only way to get an answer is to ask. There's no sense in, in, in allowing yourself to dwell in a state of confusion. Let's not forget the parable of the sower. I talked about sowing the, the seed on all these different types of ground, but, but there's one particular type of ground where he said the enemy comes because they have no understanding and he removes the seed. 
Any teaching in your life that you cannot comprehend completely, it's, uh, it's not going to be of any benefit to you. So it can't edify. If, if you don't believe it and you don't understand it, it cannot benefit your Christian life because you can't apply it. And if you're offended at what the scripture says about this or that, you certainly won't apply it because you're angry. So from that particular word, the only option then is to turn and walk away from it. You just avoid it. But always remember, whenever you reject truth, you automatically accept error and the lie. So Jesus asked the question, does this offend you? Notice what verse 66 says again. And this is because of this discussion. From that time, many of his disciples went back. Now, that's that's a lot of people, folks. All of us are very much interested in addition. And we very much like multiplication when it comes to churches and following God. But there are times when truth brings about a subtraction because there's some people don't want truth. They don't accept truth. They're not interested in truth. They are desiring something that will conform to their own image of God, something that will make them feel good about who they are and what they do in their own error. And when Jesus comes along and presents the truth to them, sometimes people just say, look, I just can't do this Jesus thing. If you're trying to tell me that that book says and Jesus said he's the way, the truth and the life and there's no other way to the father but by him, I, I just can't believe in any kind of religion like that. And think of how many people have started off confessing some kind of faith in God and rejected Christ to become a Buddhist, to become Hindu. I think the number would stagger you if you really thought about it and if you were able to figure out how many of them are like that. Every year I read some kind of a brief biography of some minister who had been Protestant or something like that and rejects the gospel because they say the, the scriptures were too narrow and I can't believe that God would reject all these other people in other religions and they turn from the truth and end up in atheism and then write a book on why I turned my back on the evangelical faith. Why I rejected the spirit-filled life. All of that because of misunderstandings regarding scripture. And then sometimes because they understand it clearly, but just don't like what they're hearing. That's what it can be sometimes. So look here, verse 66 again. They decided to walk away from him. They didn't want to be with him anymore. I, I can't imagine that. As, as nice as Jesus was, as loving as Jesus was, as, as humble as Jesus was, Knowing that children liked him, the elderly loved him. He did miracles. He healed the sick. Wonderful things he did. Yet there still were a group of people who had no desire to walk with him. So don't be surprised when there are people in this world not interested in being Christian. It does not surprise me at all when people on television say bad things about Jesus today. They're selfish. They're self-centered. Carnal. Fleshly, their life is grounded in their own personal desires. They're not interested at all in any kind of a cross. And they're certainly not interested in any kind of pathway that's going to lead to Calvary. 
So individuals like that who want to gratify their, themselves and the lusts of their own flesh, they will not walk with him because if you walk with Jesus, you have to put your faith in him and be willing to set aside your own ambition sometime so you can fulfill the plan and purpose of God for your life. So verse 67, Jesus recognized that multitudes of people were leaving and then he asked them a question. Now, had this been uh, many, many pastors today, I can tell you what they would have done. They would have got a committee together and then on Monday or Tuesday, they would have had them manning the telephones and been calling everybody trying to figure out why the folks are leaving the church. And if they didn't do that, they'd have sent them to the homes and asked them what the problem was. And they'd have had them filling out all kinds of sheets. And there'd have been a nice poll that they would have taken to find out what's wrong. Why are you leaving? And then somebody said, well, because you don't have a pool hall in the fellowship hall. See? And somebody else said, I- I'm coming back just as soon as you get a smoking room in there. I've been wanting a cigar bar in the church for a long time, and I'll be there. See, there. There's always a reason why some people will not come, and there are always reasons why some people leave. But Jesus asked the question to the twelve, will you also leave? Now, he didn't ask it to everybody else that left, but he was concerned about the twelve because those are the ones that he'd commissioned to be with him. We'll say a little bit more about that in a little bit. But Simon Peter, here's one of those opportunities he had to speak. And he finally said something that really was smart. I mean, because he, he, you know, he, he had that foot in mouth disease very often. And he was constantly saying stuff he shouldn't have been saying. But here, Peter, he makes the statement or the question, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, notice he didn't say to what shall we attend or to what shall we go? But to whom? Peter's thinking about there's no other living, breathing person on this planet that I've heard say what you say. Now, at the time Jesus was alive, Buddha had already come and gone. Hinduism had already been on this planet at least a thousand years. Zoroastrianism had been here. So in that belief, the prophet Zoroaster had come and gone. There were all kinds of religions, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, the cult of Mithra, ancient Egyptian deities, all of the animism that's involved with with the African religions. Let's not forget when we start talking about some of the ancient Chinese religion, there had been all kinds of philosophers that had come and gone, Plato, Socrates and others. And yet Peter, he asked the question, Lord, to whom shall we go? Us. We've heard you. And, and once, once you've heard him, why would you want to go to anybody else? That's what I can't, can't fathom. Why would anybody want to leave Jesus Christ in order to go to a pagan religion? And people do it very often. But Peter was, he was on the mark here. He, he knew exactly what, what the key was. He said, you have the words of eternal life. So your words are important and your words are eternal. What you're saying is going to live forever and your words are going to go into the next life. And since we can follow you and you're eternal, I expect that your words are able to preserve and keep us and be with us. That's the key. So if I'm if I'm looking for eternal life, I've got to turn to Jesus. If you're looking for something other than eternal life, then go ahead. Follow Islam. 
Follow the precepts of Muhammad. If you want to turn away from, from truth and you want to turn away from heaven and you want to start climbing down Mount Zion in the opposite direction rather than climbing up due north headed straight towards glory, then all you have to do is forsake the pathway of truth. And you'll find that broad is the way that leads to destruction. And he says here in verse 9, 69, we believe, I love this, here's our doctrinal statement. He says, Lord, we believe and we are certain you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that's a confession worth making right there. Here's what we believe, here's where we stand, here's where, this is where holy ground is for us. You're the Christ. What does that mean? You're the anointed one that we've been waiting for for generations. Now there was a, a Jewish man, I was listening to him give some, some evidence in, in his mind of why Jewish people can't accept the Messiah today, accept Jesus as the Messiah. His main thing was, in Jewish tradition, there is no belief of a second coming of the Christ. He said, we believe that when the Messiah comes, he's going to inaugurate the kingdom, and that's going to be the end of it. He said, but you Christian folks honestly believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and that he's gone to heaven, and that he's coming back. He said, that's contrary to any of our Jewish traditions. And I thought to myself, okay, that may be contrary to your Jewish tradition, but it's not contrary to this book. Because the book makes it very plain that Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem. Made it very plain that he, according to Isaiah 53, is going to bear our sins, our griefs, and our sorrows. Even went so far as to explain that Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. The prophecies were so exact. When you get into Psalm 22, you can see some of the sayings of his coming out of his mouth on the cross and him dying between two thieves and him going into the ground. And David even stating without really understanding the truth of it, that he was coming out of that grave because God would not allow the Holy One to see corruption. And it's that Christ that, according to Acts chapter one, was levitated and then caught away up into the clouds as the apostles and disciples were standing there and the angels of God were there saying, don't be discouraged. The same Jesus you saw going up is the same one coming back. So I don't care what modern Jewish tradition says. I'm telling you, the book says he was the Christ. and He is coming back. And when Peter says we believe, this is where we have to be. Strong in our faith, solid on the foundation and determined to confess what we believe, that he is the son of the living God. This is where we have our biggest disagreements with Jewish people and with Islamic people because they deny the sonship of Jesus Christ. They say God cannot have a son. He cannot create a son. That big dome of the rock, Arabic calligraphy going around it in big, bold letters for everybody who can read Arabic to see it when they're in that city. It makes it very plain when it quotes one of the, the final surahs in the Koran that says, God is not begotten, neither does he beget. Which is to say, he himself has never been created and he has never had a child. And all Arabs see that whenever they're on that temple mount and they can see it in the Arabic Calligraphy. But Peter said, I disagree. I disagree with our present 
rabbis and Sadducees and Pharisees. And Peter made it very plain. My statement is going to disagree with all of those in the future generations who come along and say that he's not the son of God. In fact, John, in 1 John, a Jewish man, he said, whoever denies the son doesn't have the father. That's what he said. So the Jewish people who wrote the New Testament, the men who had been circumcised as infants, and then came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, preached a gospel that they believed should go to their own people, the Jewish folks, and then to the nations of the world. And this is why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Romans chapter one, verses 16. And he goes on to say, it is for the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. And in the book of Acts, when Paul did his missionary journeys, you see over and over again, he went to the Jewish people first in the synagogues. Then after they rejected it, he said, look, I'll go to the Gentiles seeing how you count yourself unworthy of this gospel. So the confession is strong. If, if you and I are going to believe this, then we need to know this. This is shouting ground for us, but this is also one of the kinds of statements that can get you killed around the world. Yeah. If you're a Christian in the Middle East... I can think of two things that will lead to you receiving the death penalty. Number one, if you ever get baptized in water and they find out you've been baptized. Because for Muslims in the Middle East, once you go through that particular event, that really symbolizes for them you become a Christian. The second thing is, if with your lips you confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Because if you say he's the Son of God, you're saying he is God. That'll produce all kinds of problems for you. But the people involved with Shintoism in Japan, there's a reason that they don't let Muslims immigrate to Japan. They don't want to deal with all that fighting. They don't want to deal with all uh, that, that kind of a, a animosity towards all other people. But the gospel still has been able to penetrate a lot of different areas of Japan, the different islands of Japan. And the confession is still strong. Jesus Christ is the son of God, even when you have to preach to Japanese families who worship their ancestors and keep them in a vase on a, on a shelf somewhere. I've seen it. And for a year when I lived in Japan and tried to witness to military personnel and Japanese people and Korean people, I, I found out real quick as a teenager that it's hard for these people to separate themselves from the traditions of their parents because Japanese people do not ever want to be seen as disrespectful of their elders. There's a strong deference towards the beliefs of grandma and grandpa. Peter said, we believe and are sure you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And I hope you're sure about that. There's some things in life you ought to be certain about. You really ought to be certain about this. Jesus answered them, have not I chosen you twelve? Notice the past tense of that sentence. And one of you is, that's present tense, a devil. So there's been a change that has occurred. Now let's, let's explore this whole thing with Judas briefly. Let's go to John, excuse me, Luke chapter 6, the Gospel of Luke 
chapter 6. I need you to kind of see this. Verse number 12, Luke chapter 6. It came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. So that's a good prayer meeting all night long, folks. All night. But when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. So he called all of the followers that he had together. And of them, of the followers, he chose 12. See, of that mass of people there in the mountain, he brought them together and he chose 12. And he named them, the 12, to be apostles. And you can see verse 16, Judas is one of them. So what I'm trying to emphasize in this is that when Jesus went and spent time in the presence of the Lord and prayed, uh, he, he didn't just arbitrarily on his own just choose 12 people. He prayed through and talked to God about who was supposed to be involved with his mission. And, and these 12 are the ones that he specifically chose. Now, if you go now to Mark chapter three, Mark chapter three. This gives us a variation of that. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. He goes up into a mountain and called whom he would, and they came unto him. Verse 14. And he ordained 12. Notice, he ordained, he appointed 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. Now, you probably are familiar with the verses beginning with verse 20 going on down, verse 23, when he said, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now, the reason I'm bringing this out is when Jesus chose the 12 and Judas was one of the original 12, he did not begin as a devil. He started off as somebody that was OK. And according to verse Verse 14, Jesus ordained the 12. Now, that's important. Jesus, you'll never be able to convince me that Jesus would have ordained someone who was evil. And then gave them power to heal and to cast out devils. And it doesn't ever in here say that only, only the 11 were permitted to do this. It says the 12 in verse 14 and then verse 15 to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. So the, the discussion becomes in verse 22, this whole thing about how they're casting out devils and how Jesus is doing it. And they're saying he's casting out devils because he has a devil and he's doing it through Beelzebub. And Jesus asked the question, how can Satan cast out Satan? He can't. Somebody full of the devil can't cast out the devil. It has to be somebody full of life, full of holiness, walking with God in order to expel the adversary. And these kinds of settings certainly continue today. And in verse 25, it says a house divided against itself. That house cannot stand. Of course not. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. So let's now go back to the Gospel of John, and I want you to go to chapter number 12. We know that the 12 went out with power and were doing miraculous things. But I'm going to tell you this, what happened with the 12 easily happens with people today in church. 
You walk with Jesus so long, you hear Jesus teach so many lessons, you see so many people healed, and pretty soon you start taking for granted what you're seeing every day. I don't know that, because even towards the middle of all of this, Jesus was saying, look, I've got to go to my father. There's a place being prepared for you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You know, one of the disciples said, well, well Lord, how, how can we know the way? He, he's preached to them hundreds of times. And now you have somebody, Lord, how can we know the way? That tells me that you, somebody could walk with Jesus and just not pay attention to what he's saying sometimes. Or having been appointed by God, still not grasp everything that the Lord is saying. There were other occasions where Philip had questions about the Lord, just like Thomas had questions about the Lord. But notice here in John 12, we've got a few days before the Passover and verse two, Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table. This, this was the guy that had been raised from the dead. How'd you like to have him sitting at the table with you? <laughs> yes, that's a pretty good poster boy for the power of God there. Yeah. So verse three, Mary took a, a pound of ointment, very expensive, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, now I'm reading this because I want, I want you to know I'm sure that in all the times Jesus healed people and blessed people, he probably was honored hundreds of times. People fell at his feet, said, son of David, have mercy on me. People probably kissed his hand, kissed his feet, as in this occasion, and all kinds of things. So it's not like this is the first time everybody, anybody's ever doing something nice for Jesus. But verse 4, then one of the disciples, Simon, Ju Simon's son, which is Judas Iscariot, which should betray him, he asked the question, why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and bear what was put in. So remember, John is writing this some years after the fact. As the God, the Holy Ghost is bringing these reminiscences uh, to him. And we know from the end of this particular book, John only wrote down those things and stories that he believed would lead people to believe on the name of Jesus Christ and that he was the son of God. That's what the last few verses of the last couple of chapters tell us. So he knew now in hindsight that this man wasn't good, but he didn't know it every day when they were walking together. How do I know that? Go to chapter 13. Chapter 13. So verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God, he gets up, sets aside some garments, puts a towel on, puts water in a basin in verse 5, and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Think about that. What humility there. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a foot washing service, but it, it, it really can be a powerful, powerful thing when you have people humble themselves like that to wash their neighbor's feet. Verse six. Well, some of you Lutherans might have bunions, so we'll be careful about that. OK, see, see, there I go acting silly again. See, OK, verse six, then cometh he to Simon Peter and Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I do, you don't know right now, but you will know hereafter. 
Peter, the wheels started turning and Peter said, look, if 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 you're going to do that, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. So he's got sense. He said, this is going to be helpful for me. Let, let, let's do this. OK, well, <clears throat> as we continue. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them at this mealtime, Verily I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. And there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom he loved. Simon Peter made a motion to him or beckoned to him that he should ask of him who it should be. The reason he's asking is because none of them know who it is. Here's a man going through a transformation right in the midst of them, and they couldn't even tell it was taking place. Don't tell me people can't backslide sitting next to you in church week after week, and you not even know that they're backsliding. They're still going through the motions, see, going through the motions of religion. You cannot see what's going on in somebody else's heart, but you can pay attention to what's coming out of their mouths. And when that man said, look, why didn't we spend this on the poor and started murmuring and complaining? You'll find that some of the grumblers and complainers are the ones that are having the struggles oftentimes inside. They can never find anything right. They walk into a room and it is just clean as a whistle and they still see a cobweb in the corner over there. That's how some people are. So notice, Jesus in verse 26 said, he it is to whom I shall give a sop. That's a morsel of bread. I'm going to dip that in some gravy or something when I've dipped it. And when he dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon. Now, if I was Judas, I wouldn't even reach for it. Jesus would have had to throw it at me. I'm telling you, he would have had to throw it at me or set it in front of me because there's no way on this earth he would have reached for it, put it in the plate and then handed it to me after he just said the one I give this to is going to betray me. I would have been paying attention. And it says in verse 27, after the sop who entered into him. That means he wasn't there before. See, He was not in him before. And I can show you the same thing in Luke 22 if we were to turn turn there. But Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Jesus was the only one that knew about the transformation taking place in his life. And he said, what you're going to do, get it done. Because he was the only one that could see what was about to happen. Yeah. So the point I'm trying to bring out with all of this is that in our, in our relations with God and in our walk with God, do as it says in Proverbs, guard your heart, for out of your heart comes the issues of life. You be very careful about how you protect your mind and how you uh, keep yourself focused on the word. Have a good, solid foundation so that you won't be easily deceived. The devil comes in with little, small things. Now, let's return to this whole thought of, of Judas complaining. Apparently, he had some kind of role that was similar to Someone holding on to the money or keeping the money or something like that. Now imagine. Jesus told his disciples one by one to leave their area of work, as in Matthew, leaving the tax collecting. Peter and Andrew, James and John, leaving the fishing business, said, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they did that. So they walked away from finances. People wonder, well, how is it that Jesus was able to care for these disciples and look after them? Luke chapter 8, I believe it is, tells us that there were all kinds of women 
that ministered to Jesus out of their substance. Then gives the names of the ladies. So obviously there were either some ladies who had inherited a whole lot of money or some ladies that had some jobs and were making some money or some ladies that had access to their husband's money. And they were all in agreement about supporting Jesus. So Jesus, he's coming into these these resources as he's doing ministry. And that's only natural. That's why he told his disciples, look, when you go into these towns two by two, you preach the kingdom of God has come. You heal the sick. You cast out devils. Don't take a purse with you. Why would he tell them that? Jesus knows when you go in there and bind the strong man and set the captives free, people are going to want to give to you. If you want to really know what prosperity message is, there it is right there. That's barefoot prosperity. Just put some sandals on and go preach. And people are going to bless you because they're interested in what you do. Now, Billy Graham, I have no idea on this earth what that man's budget was for his ministry when he was here on planet Earth. I don't think I ever heard him one time teach a message on a hundredfold return. But I guarantee he had a whole lot of money to hold these crusades across, across the world. A whole lot of it. Somebody with a totally different kind of gospel message, D. James Kennedy, and his kind of Calvinism that he believed in. I watched him one time say he was in debt, and needed some money, made one appeal in the television camera. And then a few weeks later, he was saying it's all paid off. And all he simply did was tell people that he needed some help. Jimmy Swaggart, totally different. He didn't do a whole lot of health and wealth stuff, but he, he certainly has no problem letting you know what his needs are and telling you we need to buy a camera that's going to cost five million or whatever. He makes his appeal. Money is coming in from all kinds of different directions. People at camp meeting are contributing big funds and people are supporting him. The, the, the point that I'm getting at is real simple. If, if, if you have a vision or a ministry that a group of people believe in, they'll support it. You don't have to have a gimmick or a scheme. So the ones who do yet tell people that 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 if you give, God's going to bless you in return. That's true. And as a person who tithes and gives offerings, you have tithers rights. And when you think about Malachi, if you're faithful and, and you find a ministry that that you believe is fruitful and a, and a blessing, and you want to help them, you write a check or give an offering to them. That's wonderful. You have every right to expect that as you have given God's going to multiply and give it back to you because the scripture says, give and it shall be given unto you. So that principle is there. I'm just simply saying that in the ministry of Jesus Christ, he did not suffer from lack because everywhere he went, the supernatural was breaking out. I mean, if, think of how many people were going to these ancient doctors who knew nothing about what we would think of today as good medicine, but they had superstitions and you had to go to these witch doctors and stuff like that. And people tell you, pay some money for this and that. And they're carrying their little babies to these people and they're going broke as the woman with the issue of blood spent all her money on doctors. Then you come to Jesus and and Jesus heals you. Don't you think one of them is going to want to give? You better believe it. Somebody's been giving thousands of dollars every month just to get something they thought was a remedy. They hadn't been working. People have been getting worse. Then Jesus heals them. They'll say, we want to help this man go around Israel because he said, I'm only called to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus never went to Africa. He didn't go up into ancient Turkey and Asia Minor. He stayed within the confines of the allotted areas given to the 12 tribes of Israel, and preached the gospel. So considering that, then 
you can understand that Judas probably had his hands on a sizable amount of money. I'm not going to speculate on how much. I'm just going to say a sizable amount of money. But his problem was he saw enough miracles where it no longer amazed him. Understand that? He was no longer surprised or astonished by what God was doing. The, the initial joy that, that comes on the scene when people are born again and give their hearts to the Lord. If you're not careful, pretty soon you just start acting like, oh, what's supposed to happen? Well, it is supposed to happen, but you, your heart still should thrill with everybody that comes into the kingdom of God. And you should be happy every time somebody confesses that they've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't get excited, then your exciter is out of joint. You got to get it fixed, get it healed. Because God wants us to know he does not want us to become like Judas, where we just complaining about it. they spent money on this. They did this. They did that. He wants us to be excited about what we see God doing in the earth. So you got to examine yourself. To see whether or not you're in the faith. Personal inventory. Let's go back to John chapter 6. Let's tie all of this up. Verse 71 tells us, He it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Now John can say this. Because he's looking back in hindsight and he realizes who it is that betrayed him. And you know the end story of his life. Judas died. And he went back to the temple, having betrayed the Lord for a few pieces of silver. He threw the silver down because he felt so bad about it. And then he went out and ended up losing his life, threw himself down the hill. Scripture says that insides burst as he took his own life, but it had to be hurtful to know that he was one of the twelve. The people that can hurt you the most are the people that are closest to you. I'm sure that there are a lot of preachers that probably you could listen to on the radio or television or go in different communities and hear and they could say something to you. And it may wound you or hurt you or bother you, but because you know me and have a relationship with me, I'm sure I could say something to you that probably really could wound you because you're closer to me than you are to some other preachers. Same thing with family. Moms and dads can say things to their kids that would hurt them. That's something that a friend would say would never bother them. And a church member, somebody you worship with, someone you're close to, a good friend, best friend, could say something to you that would really bother you. And if it was an acquaintance that you met or somebody you just met in the grocery store, it wouldn't bother you at all. But imagine having a Judas part of your inner circle. That's what Jesus had. The thing I like about Jesus, he was wise enough and discerning enough to be able to follow and track this man's spiritual condition from the day of his ordained appointment all the way up until the end when he came and planted that kiss on Jesus' cheek in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because even though Jesus had done all these miracles, the Roman soldiers didn't know exactly who he was. They said, how are we going to know when we get there? Which one is, gonna, is, is it going to be that we're going to arrest? And they said, well, look, we'll let you know. I'm going to go and I'll kiss him on the cheek. And I love the way Jesus asked these great questions sometimes, you know, friend, see, 
Imagine calling Judas a friend. Betrayest me with a kiss? How would you call that scoundrel a friend? As, as bad as he is, as bad as he has treated uh, the Savior in the middle of all of this, selling him out for a few pieces of silver. For in the, for, so in, the, in the, the believer's relationship with other people, you, you've got to understand, you've got to always keep your eyes open. You never know who Judas is. You have no idea who Judas is going to be. Just keep your eyes open, pay attention to what's going on. And the main thing is just pay attention to any changes you see in people's behavior and in the character. That's, that's usually what reveals it. Uh, I heard a man say one time in, in church splits, he said, usually when a church splits, he said, Judas stays behind. He said, the church will split. There'll be one person causing the ruckus, causing the division. And he said, when the division takes place, that very often the one who caused all the problems will stay behind just to see what happens before they leave. Think about that. So here was Judas creating all kinds of tension and problem. And, and he was right there in the middle of the twelve as they were going two by two around the various villages and praying for the sick. And you know what Judas was doing? He was doing the same thing everybody else was doing. He, here he is out here laying his hands on people and, 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 and it's likely wonderful things were happen uh, periodically for him before they finally stopped. You say, how, how can that happen? Because God uses flawed, infirm people. That's what the Old Testament is about. How, how, how could God take a man like Abraham who could pray for a king and all the ladies and because they had taken Sarah, it says they had become barren, essentially. But when they gave Sarah back, God opened up their womb. But yet Abraham was the man that lied and said, this is my sister, which was a half truth. Think of Moses. Moses killed a man. But yet Moses still was used to do great miracles, signs and wonders. Even when his own wife said to him that you're a bloody man to me. That's what she said. And then if we go into Judges, I mean, Samson never saw a woman he didn't like. But yet God used him as the judge in Israel. See? Gideon, as fearful as he was, David, as bad as he was, got a man murdered through conspiracy. But yet God still let a man like that destroy Goliath in the beginning. Solomon? The lusts of his heart consumed him, a thousand wives and concubines, but yet he could go to sleep and Jesus or the Lord could appear to him in a vision and say, what is it that you want? And he said, I want wisdom. And God does it. So over and over again, what I'm saying is you, you'll see that God has used all kinds of flawed people to do wonderful things in his kingdom, even when the Lord knew people weren't always doing right. And I, I could start in the 40s and 50s. And tell you about healing evangelists that preached under tents and saw multitudes of people come to Christ. And at the same time, they were robbing the church blind, stealing money. I can tell you stories of preachers who were holding massive crusades and involved with all kinds of TV ministries and controlled TV ministries. But still were involved with lewd activities. Yet when you watch the TVs, you can still see hundreds and thousands of people streaming down an aisle to come to know Christ. God will use any feeble stick he can get his hands on. We just need to do the best we can to be a stronger stick 
than the other one before us. And, and remember that the scripture says it's before God that they stand or fall. Who are we to judge another? See? So that's the key there. Yeah. But so let's not leave Jesus. There's nobody else to turn to. And, and I, I just think if we hold on to him, we're all going to make it to heaven. If, if, you, if, you, if you're looking for a good message, I brought a good one on Sunday evening. Oh, Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I come quickly. And my reward I bring with me. I'm telling you that. Oh, that'll, that'll make you want to go chase after a lion. Folks, barehanded. You'll be ready, ready to do her. Come on, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. We honor you and we praise you. We're so grateful that you have the words of eternal life. For some reason or another, the great gospel came to each one of us and we believed. And we're trusting you and we're thanking you and we're honoring you every day. Help us by the mighty power of your Holy Spirit to keep our hearts right with you. We know we're kept by the word of your power. We honor you. We praise you. Our strength is not in ourselves, but in you and you alone. In Jesus name. And everyone said, amen, 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 amen.